We are in Genesis chapter 7, continuing really our series in Genesis and really this focus on Noah, the next genealogy that we are in, the genealogy of Noah and the story of the flood and the ark and God's covenant with Noah and his family and the salvation of them. So we read the first speech of God to Noah last week, and this morning we will pick up on the second speech of God to Noah. So if you will, look with me at Genesis 7. We'll begin our reading in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for God's illumination of it. Father, we ask that your spirit would be at work helping us to hear what it is that he is saying to the churches. We know that Christ our head means to speak to us by the spirit through the word. We know that this was superintended at the hand of Moses, not just for the people of Israel headed to the promised land, but but for your church in every age. We pray that we would read it as such and that you would work in us so that we are righteous like Noah, thankful for the covenant grace that we've been shown. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Genesis 6.13 as I said, introduced to us God's first speech to Noah. We had gotten the genealogy, which started a new section, as well as a statement about the kind of man Noah was. Righteous and blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God. He had three sons. And then we hear about the condition of the world in contrast to Noah. It was wicked. It was corrupt. It was being destroyed. And then God speaks. God sees and behold, the earth is corrupt which is a contrast with Genesis 1.31, where God saw and behold, it was all very good, all that he created. Now he contrasts that, and then God speaks. And in his speech, he says, I am going to destroy all the earth, every living thing on the earth. And then he comes to Noah and says, so build an ark because I'm going to save you and your family because I'm going to keep my covenant with you. The covenant that is found in Genesis 3.15, that I will send the seed of the woman who will save humanity. And if no one is family or wiped out and there's no one alive, that covenant certainly can't be kept, nor can Noah benefit from it. And so he tells him to do this. So the Lord has spoken to Noah. The Lord has told Noah to build an ark, for God has chosen to covenant with him And save him. Noah has been shown God's grace by way of covenant. 
the covenant already made at the fall of man. And we see that story being picked up in a kind of historical type. Something that happens to Noah that gives us a picture of what's coming in the gospel. That God will save his people through judgment. And he will do that through a righteous man. Who will go into the floodwaters of death and arise in the resurrection to new life. And restore all the earth. And save his people. In other words, this is a historical example of Genesis 3.15. The Lord is saving his covenant people through destroying the seed of the serpent. He's saving, if you will, the people of the woman and destroying the seed of the serpent. And God is covenanting with Noah, covenanting grace to save him and his family from the flood judgment so that he might preserve the earth as a kind of second chance at creation. Now, the main purpose is not, the main purpose is not just to work through Noah to give creation a second chance as some erroneously claim. Not at all. Rather, God is saving Noah so that God might fulfill his gracious promise in bringing into history the seed of the woman, the second Adam, the incarnate son of God, the savior of the world, our Lord Jesus Christ. This whole story really did happen in history. And yet it also pointed forward to an even greater historical day. A day when in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So this morning we pick up the second speech of God to Noah. Genesis 7-1 introduces God's second speech to Noah and begins with these kind words. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. The Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark. This can also be translated, Come into the ark. And friends, I hope it's here when you see this speech, that you stop and behold the grace of God. The grace of God to Noah, come into the ark and be saved. Look down at Genesis seven 16. We'll come back to the rest of this passage next week, but look at down at Genesis seven 16. And those that entered, everybody's entered the ark, and those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and notice this language, and the Lord shut him in. You hear this? The Lord comes to Noah. I've covenanted with you. I've elected you. I've shown grace to you. You trust me. Build an ark. Builds the ark. The Lord comes to Noah. The flood's coming in seven days. Come into the ark and be saved. And they come into the ark. The Lord shuts him in. Protecting him from the floodwaters of God's judgment. It's just God's grace. All the way through to Noah. The Lord has covenanted grace to Noah. The Lord saved Noah in the ark. And friends, the ultimate ark of salvation is Christ. Who bids you 
Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Behold your God. We are born in sin and guilt. We are born hopeless and helpless. We sin and rebel against God's law, and God patiently holds out his hand to us and rains down so much good upon us, and yet we continue in rebellion. And God's response to our rebellion is to pursue us in grace. Now, he certainly does judge and condemn, but only after he promises grace in Christ and warns all those who will not receive that grace. And why does God show such grace? Why does he do it? Because as he says in Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Children, if you're in a Christian home, a home where your parents walk with the Lord and teach you the word, then you need to realize how kind of the Lord that is to you. I did not grow up in a Christian home. I did not ever see my parents pray or read the Bible. I never heard about Jesus. I was not a part of a church community. I did not see my parents walk in godliness and humility. Rather, I saw and experienced the wreckage of sin all around me. I did not see my parents show the kind of love and kindness many of you have seen. I did not see my home as a place of blessing, but as a place I was afraid to be. Now in his loving kindness, the Lord saved me. The Lord saved me. And my children were blessed to grow up in a Christian home with parents who loved them, who taught them the word, who catechized them, who prayed for them and with them, and who modeled godliness to them. They received so many blessings of God's grace in that. And many of you kids in here are receiving those same blessings from God. You should thank the Lord for that. You have no idea What a blessing it is to come to a home where your parents love the Lord and love you. As opposed to coming to a home where your parents love themselves and you're afraid to be because of the consequences that has for you. The Lord has showered great blessings upon you in giving you Christian parents. Showered great blessings upon you. Don't take that for granted. Be thankful and trust the Lord who would be so kind to you. And Noah was a man upon whom the Lord showered much grace. A man to whom the Lord made a promise, and Noah was a man who believed that promise. And God called him into the ark to be saved from the flood. But God did not only covenant with Noah, and he did not merely save Noah from the flood. No, God covenanted with two parties. And called them both into the ark. He called Noah and his household into the ark. 
So today I want to consider those two parties in the Lord's covenant of grace with Noah. There are two parties who are blessed due to God's gracious calling of Noah into covenant. Noah and his household. And I want to consider both this morning. Let's look at the first party, Noah. Noah is the first party to God's covenant of grace here. Again, look at Genesis 7-1. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark. The language here is that of God kindly saying to him, come to your salvific blessings. Now, what qualified Noah for entry into the ark? Look again at the verse. Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I've seen that you, singular masculine, you, Noah, are righteous before me in this generation. Noah was granted access to God's ark to be carried through the floodwaters of God's judgment because Noah was righteous, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. In fact, note the emphasis on Noah's obedience. Look at Genesis 6.22, the immediate preceding verse. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Look down at Genesis 6.5. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. And look down at verse 16. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. Are you picking up the emphasis there? It is the righteousness of Noah that qualified him to enter the ark. Look at Genesis 6, 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Thus, the Lord called Noah to enter the ark, an ark that would eventually land at Mount Ararat, where Noah would worship God. Genesis 8, 4 and following. Noah would go down into the waters of death and arise out of that watery grave to the mountain of the Lord where he would commune with the Lord. A man, listen, a man may not ascend God's mountain and dwell in God's tabernacle where God is unless he is a righteous man as Noah was. Look with me at Psalm 15. Psalm 15, Jason read that this morning in our time of prayer, but look there. Scholars refer to this as the gate liturgy. In other words, there's a gate keeping you from where God dwells. And how does one enter where God dwells or go through that gate? Notice the answer. A Psalm of David, Psalm 15, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent, your tabernacle where you are, who shall dwell on your holy hill? In other words, who will ascend the mountain of the Lord and dwell where God dwells? Answer, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. This is the same language we see with regard to Noah. He is the one who does what is right. He is righteous. He is a man who is blameless in his generation. He walks blamelessly. He is a man who walks with God. It is because Noah is righteous walking in blamelessness, that Noah can enter the ark and, if you will, ascend the mountain of God's dwelling and commune with him. Now, here comes the question that I'm sure you're all wanting to know the answer to. 
How was Noah righteous and blameless in his generation? How was he righteous and blameless in his generation? Now, I already answered that in last week's sermon. But I just will give you a quick reminder. How did Noah come to walk with God in faithfulness and obedience? Here's the answer. The Lord set his electing love upon Noah. We know that from Genesis 5, 28 and 29, as his father Lamech says of him, that he's the one through whom the Lord will bring rest to the ground. The Lord has set him apart. The Lord set his covenant grace upon Noah. We know that in Genesis 6, 8, which comes before Genesis 6, 9, that God showed grace to Noah before Noah is called righteous and blameless in his generation. We know that from Genesis 6, 18, that God was going to keep his covenant with Noah. And because of the Lord's loving kindness and grace, Noah believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. We know that as well from Hebrews eleven seven. By God's grace, through faith, Noah was saved from his own sin and created to walk in good works. By grace, Noah trusted in the promise of the coming Christ. Noah anchored his soul to Christ. And Noah loved Christ, walking in obedience to his word. This was God's grace to Noah. And it is because of God's grace to Noah that we read of his qualification to dwell in the house of the Lord. Beloved, remember that the problem of man that began with our sin in the garden, remember that problem. Adam and Eve sinned. They were kicked out of the garden of God. When they sinned, they were told to descend from the mountain called Eden where God dwelled. And they could not re-enter. They couldn't go back through the gate into God's dwelling because sinful man may not dwell where God dwells. We are unable to save ourselves from our own guilty and corrupt condition and from certain condemnation. And we are unable to change our rebellious, hell-bent hearts. Unable. So if we're to be saved, then the Lord must save us. And the Lord saved Noah. God in his grace covenanted with Noah to save him through the flood of his day. And through the ultimate, listen, through the ultimate floodwaters of God's judgment at the end of days. God saved Noah in Christ. Christ went through the floodwaters of God's judgment at the cross and rose, if you will, from those waters in the resurrection. And he did that for Noah. By the covenant grace of God, Noah is righteous by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that grace of faith works itself out in Noah's life. And the working out of that grace of faith is something that God then approves and even rewards. This is not different for us. It's not different for us. We're saved by the same covenant grace of God found in Christ alone. God does this work in us. Jason already turned you to Ephesians 2 this morning, but look at Ephesians 2 with me. Turn back there. Ephesians 2. And I will do a bit of a shorter reading since he read the larger portion of this. Verses 8 through 10 we'll look at. After talking about our being dead in sin and God graciously making us alive together in Christ... 
He sums up this way, for by grace you have been saved, verse 8, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, this grace that God freely gives you through faith in Christ is not merely justification. I mean, listen, in some sense, that seems gloriously good enough. He forgives you your sins and declares you righteous in Christ. But no, he gives you more than that by his grace. You're created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. The Lord has given us a double grace in Christ, both justification and sanctification. We are saved from the wrath of God unto holiness in life. Holiness in life is not some burden that the Lord has placed upon us. Holiness, righteousness, is a gift of God's grace. In fact, it brings rest to the heart and the soul. Righteousness, in fact, is called a peaceful fruit that we bear. This is God's covenant grace to us in Christ as those whom he's called to salvation through faith. We're blessed to walk in newness of life, to walk with the Lord as Noah did. So in Genesis 7-1, Noah is the first party in God's covenant of grace, but another party is mentioned. So look back there at Genesis 7-1. Another party is mentioned. Namely, Noah's household. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Now, this is the first use of the word household in the Bible. And it follows the first use of the word covenant in the Bible. If you look up at Genesis 6:18, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. Now, both concepts, covenant and household, already exist. But through progressive revelation, we're gaining clarity as we get these terms. And we learn something about the parties to God's covenant with Noah. Membership in this covenant of grace with Noah is extended to his whole family. Now Noah's whole family is not righteous. The whole family is not righteous. Noah alone is mentioned as being righteous. I do not mean the whole family is wicked. Though clearly Ham is wicked. Clearly. What I mean is that we're told that the whole family is blessed to be saved through the flood with Noah. They're all parties to the covenant because Noah was righteous. Now Noah's whole family shares in the covenant blessing of being saved from God's flood judgment because Noah was righteous. And this emphasis runs throughout this story. Look down at Genesis 7-7. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Look down at 7-13. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. In fact, we're going to see this definition furthered in Genesis 9 
which when I get there, I'm going to contend is the same covenant that we see being extended here with even more detail. Look at Genesis 9, verse 8. I'm not going to prove it's the same covenant today. I'll do that in, well, I don't know. It's two chapters away, a few weeks. (laughs) Verse 8, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. The covenant of grace has a, if you will, a kind of particularity and a universality, those two things, that runs through it. The Lord is saving a particular people, but in some sense, the whole creation is being blessed through that. Now, this blessing to the household of being a party to the covenant of grace runs through every historical covenant administration in the Bible. And if you wonder, even the animals and the creation are blessed through the covenant of grace in every covenant? Yes, in the new covenant, Paul talks about it in Romans 8, the whole creation's groaning, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. God is going to restore a new creation in the consummated sense. You're already a new creation if you're in Christ by faith, but the whole consummate sense of the new heavens and the new earth. The Lord has done this throughout Scripture. This blessing to the household of being a party of the covenant of grace runs through every historical covenant administration. What does the Lord tell Abraham? I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And we continue to see this emphasis on the household throughout the Old and into the New Testament. It's so ingrained that Joshua can say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We see this language as well in the promise of the new covenant. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. What do we see in the new covenant? Jesus told Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this household. Peter says, there's more to this statement, but Peter says, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone to whom the Lord our God shall call. And we see this ongoing emphasis in the household baptisms throughout Acts. What does Paul say to the Philippian jailer? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. What I'm contending here is that the Lord covenants through the Bible with believers and their household. The Lord's covenant of grace is not merely with the believer, but also with his entire household. When the Lord brings you into the covenant of grace, he also covenants with your household. Now, clearly, I want to make an important clarification here. This does not mean that God saves every person in your household from judgment for sin. His promise to the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved, you and your whole household. The point was not, if the Philippian jailer believes in the Lord Jesus, then all his family members will be saved as well. His point was, here's the promise to you and to your whole household. God covenanted with Noah and his household, yet Ham was wicked and was cursed and condemned. God covenanted with Abraham and his household, yet Ishmael was wicked and was condemned. God covenanted with Isaac and his household, yet Esau was wicked and was condemned. God covenanted with Aaron and his household, yet Nadab and Abihu were wicked and were condemned. God covenanted with David and his household, yet Absalom was condemned. God covenanting with households never, never meant 
that every member of the household was saved from the wrath of God in the ultimate sense. However, it has always meant that the household receives any number of blessings due to the righteousness of faith of their parents. As Matthew Henry rightly said, it is good to belong to the family of a godly man. It is safe and comfortable to dwell under such a shadow. Those of you who live in the household of a godly man know exactly what Matthew Henry is saying. One of Noah's sons, Ham, was proved afterwards a bad man. Yet he was saved in the ark, which intimates that wicked children often fare the better for the sake of their godly parents. So the two parties in God's covenant are Noah and his household. And beloved, God's kindness toward you and your children has not changed. But that kindness comes with responsibilities. Comes with responsibilities. You are to trust the Lord and walk in righteousness. And you are to teach your children to do the same. Earlier I mentioned that God created us for good works, that we should walk in them. Well, what does it mean to walk in good works? What are the good works that you were created in Christ Jesus to walk in? Look at Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll conclude here in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Remember, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works that God's prepared beforehand for us that we should walk in them. What does it mean to walk in good works? Well, this is not the last time Paul uses that word. So look at Ephesians 4 and verse 1. Remember, for three chapters, Paul's given all indicatives. Here's what God has done for you in Christ. Now, for the first time, he gives imperatives. Here are commands. There's one imperative, actually, in the first three chapters, which is to remember Gentiles that at one time you were, you were, you know, far from God. That's the one imperative. But here come the imperatives in chapter 4 that give us commands as Christians in light of what Christ has done for us. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, what does that look like? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now he's going to go and talk about the variegated grace and gifts that come down through particular men. But I want to state here that we're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And he goes on to talk about that. Look at Ephesians 4 verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened to their understanding. In other words, as unbelievers do. They are darkened in their understanding. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, your old man really, 
which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self or the new man created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Do not walk as the Gentiles or unbelievers do as you did as the old Adamic man, but walk in the new man like Christ does in true righteousness and holiness. Now look at Ephesians 5, verse 1. There's so much more to read there between verses 25 and 32, but we'll keep going. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We're to imitate God and walk in love. We're to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We're not to walk as we did as unbelievers, but walk as those who are in Christ in true righteousness and holiness. We're to walk in love, imitating God. And he goes on to get into more of that, avoiding sexual morality and even the talk of it. But now he's going to go on in verse 8. Look down there, verse 8. When he says this, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. He's going to go on and say, don't take part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Finally, look down at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Do you hear all these ways he's talking about walking? He gives more details here. But these are the good works which we were created in Christ Jesus, that we might walk in them. Now that shows up, Paul's going to go on to say, in our relationships. He's going to say that it shows up in the relationship from wives to husbands and husbands to wives, from children to parents and parents to children, from slaves to masters and masters to slaves. But how does this show up in the responsibility of our children to us and our responsibility to our children. That's what I want to focus on just because I want you children in here to hear what the Lord says to you. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Children, kids, God has blessed you with a covenant home and you're responsible to obey your parents in the Lord. You're responsible to obey Jesus, but do you know how you obey Jesus? You do so by obeying your parents. 
It's really that simple. God has shown such grace to you in giving you godly parents and in including you in his church. So now you ought to believe in him and obey him. And this shows up in obedience to your parents. If you're a minor, in other words, under the authority of your parents still living in their home, and you want to know what it looks like to obey the Lord Jesus, well, it begins with obeying your parents. That's where it begins. Further, look at Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. Calvin actually takes this word, bring them up, and says it really means fondly cherish them. That's the nature of it. In the discipline and instruction of the Lord, parents, you're responsible to raise your children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. You're to fondly cherish them. You're to not provoke them to anger. In other words, being harsh, unkind, unloving, cruel, but to fondly cherish them and raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You're to pass on Christian culture and instruction. You're to raise them to be Christians, to know the Lord and follow after him. You do this by teaching them the word, by teaching them the gospel, by calling them to believe in Jesus. You do this by being godly parents who model trust and obedience. These are your covenantal responsibilities with regard to your children. Now, I have skipped over the covenantal responsibilities with regard to your spouse, but I would be remiss in neglecting to tell you that the two responsibilities actually come together in quite important ways. The greatest gift you can give to your children is the blessing of a home that loves the Lord, his church, and his word. And this shows up in your loving kindness to your spouse and your children. Shows up that way. It's what they see most. Wives, you show your children how a godly and righteous woman loves and respects and happily submits to her husband. That's what you're called to show them. That is a great blessing to them if you show them that example. If you don't, they will grow up to recognize that in you. Husbands, you show your children how a godly and righteous man loves and gently leads. And do you hear that word, gently? Lives with his wife in an understanding way as a co-heir of the grace of life. Gently leads, carefully provides and protects, and sacrificially serves his wife. I just want to address this because I've heard it a few times from husbands and wives in here, and I'm going to take a minute to say it. I've heard from folks, and we find that it seems to be normative to think it's okay that when you have a disagreement as spouses, that somehow it's okay for you to speak to each other in ungodly and sinful ways, cursing at each other, tearing each other down, belittling each other, raising your voice at each other, getting up in each other's personal space in a threatening manner, putting your hands on each other. Let me be really clear. 
That is wicked ungodliness. It's sin. You should repent. It is never okay. You have a disagreement with your spouse? Learn the discipline of keeping your mouth shut. Going to God in prayer. And then approaching them with proper Christian kindness. You need to learn that. We can discipline our mouths. We can. We must. We must do that. We walk in accord with the great grace that Christ has shown us. We walk in accord with that in our church, in the world out there, in our vocations, in our marriages, and with our children. That's what we do. We walk that way. May the Lord cause us to trust in Christ and walk in godliness. May the Lord cause us that in us. If you don't want to walk that way right now, repent. Repent. Ask the Lord to change your heart. If your heart is embittered toward your spouse or your children, if you are seeking after yourself, your own desires, and you want your spouse or your children to perform for you in such a way that you finally feel like you can love them in return, repent. That's selfish love. It isn't love for the sake of God, nor for the sake of the other. It's love so that you can get something out of it. Selfish. Repent of that. Ask the Lord to change your heart. Trust him for his grace in Christ. May the Lord do this in us. Apart from him doing it, brothers and sisters, we never will. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would be a people who know and remember and give thanks for and meditate on the grace of God in Christ. The grace that you've shown us, though, we're rebellious again and again toward you because of your loving kindness toward us, unearned or merited by us. And yet you do this. Lord, cause us to walk in the good works which you have created that we should walk in them. Make us like your son. Bring us to repentance. Cause us to meditate on your grace and the kindness you've shown us. Change our hearts so that we love you and others for your sake. Lord, cause us to walk as Noah did, as righteous, blameless people, who walk with you. We give thanks for your grace that brings us this gift, not only of the forgiveness of sins and justification or the declaration of righteousness of Christ, but by the Spirit creates us anew so that we might walk in godliness with you. What a great gift that is. May we rejoice in that gift. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.